0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today's story, the chilling true story of Carl Eden's second life. Following up on last week's interview with the Casey Institute's Peter Woodbury on the subject of reincarnation, we present one of the most incredible and well-documented cases of reincarnation, that being the story of Carl Eden. Our resources are listed in the show notes, Believers or non-believers, this story will rock you. All stories will end in death. So said Ernest Hemingway. But he was wrong on that one, if you believe even one of the thousands of accounts out there on reincarnation. I've been interested in this subject for years and read a number of books on it, but this is the first time I've come across this one. Today, in The Chilling True Story of Carl Eden, I'm bringing you a true account of a young boy in Middlesbrough, UK, who, from the age of three, communicated clearly to his parents that he had died in a plane crash close by their home. And as he grew up, he went on to describe his former life in detail. All of this with no possible access to the knowledge that researchers of this case would dig up in later years. Research which included photographs showing an eerie similarity between Carl and... And the german pilot who had crashed his world war ii plane near their town during a bombing run on january 15th 1942. middlesbrough is a fair-sized industrial town located on the banks of the river tees in northern yorkshire county in northeast england throughout the 19th and much of the 20th century middlesbrough grew rapidly as coal and then iron ore was discovered and soon middlesbrough became a major supplier of steel Their steelmaking capacity and railroad connections made them a prime target for German bombers in World War II, and they were the first target of the German Luftwaffe when the bombs started dropping on May 25, 1940. On that day, one lone bomber dropped 13 bombs between South Bank Road and the South Steel Plant, taking out a large portion of an elementary school and destroying buildings and factories. The bombings were to continue through 1944. On the evening of January 15, 1942, a Dornier bomber flying from Schiphol Base in the Netherlands took a hit just off the coast of Middlebro from some anti-aircraft guns and soon collided with a British barrage balloon on the outskirts of Hartlepole. The strong steel cable of the balloon did its job well, cutting a wing off the bomber and sending it toward the Middlebro docks before slamming into the ground just south of the Tees River in a ball of fire. It had crashed along the train line near Dorman Long Steelworks at the bottom of Clay Lane, in a nearly vacant industrial area. Rescuers ran to the scene, but the fire was too intense to save anyone in the plane. In 30 minutes, firemen arrived to put out the fire. This area, called Teesside, was a mixture of industrial plants and wasteland. The Dornier was now a smoldering pile of metal, sitting in the 10-foot-deep, 12-foot-wide crater that its crash had created. The rescue workers pulled three charred bodies from the wreckage in the company of a group of men from British intelligence who were taking all the useful information that could be gleaned from the wreckage, and the wreckage was then buried by bulldozers while the bodies of three crewmen, identified at the time as Joaquin Lanus, Rudolf Mattern, and the man they believed to be Obert Webel Heinrich Richter, were taken to nearby Thornsby on Tees Cemetery and given a burial. It wasn't until nineteen ninety seven that workers for the Northumbrian Water Board arrived at the new building site at the bottom of Clay Lane just east of South Bank Station to install a new sewage pipeline, began digging, and discovered a parachute bag and fragments of metal, which indicated that this may well have been a plane wreckage. And the first thought that they had was that there might be unexploded munitions buried there. So they called in a team of ordnance disposal experts and the Royal Engineers. As the engineers dug into the five tons of wreckage, which by now they had identified they discovered a fourth body that of the plane's gunner whose name was Heinrich Richter the section in which Richter's remains were found was a large bubble of glass below the plane which had smashed into thousands of tiny shards the right leg of the corpse was missing it had been severed in the crash later hans manicke's grave was renamed and heinrich richter was laid to rest in a proper grave next to his comrades With a small group of surviving relatives, twenty-two British servicemen, and a crowd of two hundred people. At the back of the crowd stood a married couple, Val and Jim Eden, who had come to pay their respects to the German airman who had lost his leg and died after being shot down in their town. The year was 1998. Val and Jim no doubt were thinking of one thing as Heinrich's body was finally laid to rest after fifty-six years of lying buried in the crashed bomber that maybe, just maybe, their recently deceased son Carl's soul could get its final rest as well. We'll return with Carl Eden's remarkable story right after these sponsor messages. And now back to our story, and we're going to go further back to December 29, 1972, at the birth of Carl Eden. From the time Carl Eden was a baby... His mother Val saw something different in Carl. While both his brother and sister had dark hair and brown eyes, Carl's eyes were blue and his hair was blonde. While his sibling's skins were darker and tanned easily, Carl's was fair and pale. Then, Carl was never able to relax. From baby through toddler, Carl didn't sleep well and often woke screaming. When he began to talk as a toddler, he would try to share his nightmares he talked of falling from the sky and his leg being missing from his body. His mother would settle him and sometimes, as he grew a little older, he would go into detail about his frightening dreams. He had been flying through the sky, he said, in some sort of plane. It had caught on fire. He couldn't get out. When it crashed, he felt as if his leg had been taken away. His mom, Val, hugged him and rubbed his leg convincing him that it was just a bad dream, and there was no need to worry about it. She and Jim would talk about Carl's strange dreams, wondering how it was that a toddler could remember these dreams and explain them in such grown-up detail. As the months passed, Carl had asked for and gotten a small toy plane, and he was playing with it in his room one day when Val came in. He looked up at her and said, i died before. My plane crashed straight through a window.' "'Val reassured him that it was just a dream. "'No, it wasn't,' he answered. "'It really happened.' "'And as more months passed, "'Carl shared more with Val and his father, Jim. "'One of our engines ran out,' he would later say. "'And after we crashed, I opened a hatch to try and get out, "'but one of my legs was gone, and I bled to death.' "'Soon he revealed another shock.' He said that he'd been a German pilot during the war and crashed while on a bombing mission over England. One evening, Val spotted a birthmark just below the groin on his right leg that hadn't been there before. She asked him which leg he'd lost in his dream, and he answered, the right one. She hesitated asking him this because she didn't want to indulge his fantasy that he'd been a German pilot and had lived a past life, but she couldn't resist it just once. It was a chilling revelation. When Carl turned five, he began drawing, like all kids do, except that some of his drawings were more than scribbles. On one drawing was a series of what looked like insignias or badges, and Val asked him what the drawings represented. He explained that they were Air Force badges and proudly pointed them out one by one. There was a badge with a bird, which he identified as an eagle. The next symbol was a swastika. "'Just after Carl's sixth birthday, "'his father Jim found a picture in Carl's room "'that Carl had drawn. "'It was the cockpit of a plane, "'complete with all the gauges and instruments, "'even the levers. "'He asked Carl if he had drawn the pictures, "'and Carl answered yes, "'then pointing to the red foot pedal "'he had drawn at the bottom, "'which was the pedal, he explained, "'that drops the bombs. "'Then he calmly told his dad "'that this was the inside of a Messerschmitt "'101 bomber.' just like the one he had flown in the war. His dad was convinced that Carl was playing some sort of game with his parents, and Dad knew a little bit about airplane history. The Messerschmitt, his dad thought, was a fighter plane, not a bomber. Together with Val, Jim decided to test him a little more. They asked him, So what uniform did you wear? Carl replied, Gray trousers, tucked into knee-high leather boots, and a black jacket. There were more pictures... And a few days later, Jim stopped by the local library with the pictures under his arm and headed for the history section to look up German World War II airplanes. Jim spread a few books open on the table in front of him, along with the boys' pictures. The cockpit, the badges, the uniform, all had been either drawn or described accurately by Carl. And the Messerschmitt was the FB-110, Messerschmitt. It was designed to do both, act as a fighter plane and a bomber. Now most of our listeners know that this was in the days before laptops or computers and Jim and Val kept no history library at home so Carl had no access to copy any of this information. As Carl grew he did the same things all boys do playing football outside and watching cartoons. At the age of seven he had a friend named Michael over and Val overheard him tell his pal that he'd been a German pilot and he died on a bombing run and that he would die before the age of 25. He finished by describing Adolf Hitler, and then, pretending to see Hitler's picture on the wall, began goose-stepping and saluting around the kitchen. Michael thought it was a hoot and couldn't stop laughing until a very serious Val placed a dish of food in front of him. In coming years, Carl would share memories of his life growing up in a quaint village tucked away in well-forested hills. His name then was Robert, he said. His father's name was Fritz, He couldn't remember his mother's name, but she was a big woman, her hair was always pulled back in a bun, and she wore glasses. His mother would stand by the stove making soup and order him to chop and bring in more wood for the stove. He had brothers in the war, he said, including a younger brother who lost his life shortly after he, Robert, had. He told Val that the memories came to him like scenes from a TV show. One moment, Carl was seven years old and playing with toys in his room. The next moment he was Robert. He had enlisted in the Luftwaffe. He was nineteen and living in camp with lots of small huts lined up in rows. Memories of his training brought chills to Val's spine, especially when he described how they saluted Hitler. At eight years old, Carl shared a dream with his mother about his being in the bomber when it went down. When it crashed, he said there were glass fragments everywhere and he knew he died soon after that. He once told his mom that he often thought of his missing leg and of the nineteen-year-old girl he had loved and wanted to marry. His mom's heart broke for this little boy who carried a dead man's memories. At age nine, the word got out on Carl's visions. He was interviewed by Women's Own Magazine, and soon his schoolmates were making fun of him, calling him Hitler and a Nazi, resulting in their giving him the Nazi salute when he walked by. Most days Carl would come home in tears from the abuse. From that time on, he learned a valuable lesson, and that was to keep quiet about his dreams and visions. The magazine article finally found its way, in 1983, to Ian Stevenson, who was the Carlson Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. Stevenson had gained fame for his 25 years of investigations into cases involving reincarnation. Although most of the psychiatric community in those years looked upon studies such as these as being beyond the realm of science, Stevenson had gained a large following through his detailed and dogged research. Stevenson believed that certain traits or unusual illnesses that had no hereditary matching characteristics or environmental causes might be caused by a third factor or influencer, reincarnation. Stevenson believed that a memory transfer from deceased individuals could be a serious factor in reincarnation, and this was often proved by birth defects or birth marks, which held a marked significance to past lives. One of his many case studies involved a young boy who insisted that he had shot himself in a past life. His recollections eventually led to a woman whose brother had indeed shot himself upward through the throat. When Stevenson examined the boy, he found a birthmark on his throat where the bullet was alleged to have entered. Stevenson suggested that they check for an exit wound, and when they pulled back the hair on the top of his head, there was a birthmark indicating the exit wound. When Stevenson heard about Carl Eaton, he sent one of his professors to meet Carl and prepare a case file on him. By the age of thirteen, Carl's visions vanished. He left school at sixteen to take up a job with the British Rail, preparing freight trains to deliver to the various industrial estates that lined the River Tees. Five years later, at age 21, he was granted an interview with Dr. Stevenson himself, who had traveled to the U.K. to meet him. Carl was unable at that time to add anything to the information that Stevenson already had, but Stevenson was very glad to see that Carl had adjusted well to life, had a 17-year-old girlfriend, and was looking forward to marriage and a happy life came the summer of 1995, and as you recall, 1995 was still two years before the wreckage of the bomber would be found, and a heat wave was covering the U.K. On the night of Wednesday, August 2nd, an officer on duty at Middlesbrough South Bank Police Station was alerted to the sound of a car screeching to a halt outside the station. He watched tensely as the form of a young man, well over six feet tall, pushed open the doors and stepped into the front lobby, "'his clothes covered in blood. "'The man identified himself as Gary Vintner, "'and he blurted out, "'He got angry and came at me. "'The officer asked him to calm down "'and start providing details. "'Vintner explained that he'd been working "'the evening shift less than a mile away "'at the Georgetown signal box at Teesside, "'when he and a colleague had gotten into an argument. "'He couldn't elaborate on anything "'except to say that when it was over, "'his colleague was dead.' Vinter was immediately held for questioning, and he volunteered to draw the police a map showing the location of the body. A squad car was dispatched to the area, taking a left on Tees Dock Road before heading towards the industrial wastelands in the same area, where the remains of the German bomber still rested beneath a pile of slag with its last unexpected occupant inside. They approached a squat red brick building with a tarmac roof perched just off the road behind a short piece of rail track "'that branched off toward warehouses. "'To the left was a small preparer's cabin "'where Vintner described the fight as having taken place. "'The officers exited their car "'and proceeded across the tracks, "'entering the small cabin on the left. "'The door gave a slight creak as they pushed it aside. "'They switched on their flashlights "'and saw a man lying in a pool of blood on the floor, "'the remains of a knife still protruding from his body. "'The man?' was Carl Eden. Carl had been stabbed 37 times with two knives. His attacker had apparently grabbed the second knife after the force of his stabs broke the first. It was a violent murder. An autopsy later revealed that Carl had been stabbed broadly across the breadth of his body with most internal organs punctured. The extent of the wounds tended to disqualify Vinter's claim that he had acted in self-defense. And later, a jury agreed. When Carl's old-school friend Michael, who had laughed himself silly watching Carl act out his goose-stepping former self, learned about Carl's murder, he was shocked and upset over the loss of his friend. As for Carl's family, his fiancée and his two baby daughters, his parents, his brother, and his sister, the combined effect of his death and the gruesome reality that he had predicted it had catastrophic results. Bittner would receive a minimum ten-year sentence in 1996 for the murder. He was released twelve years later, in 2008, and two weeks after his release, he stabbed his estranged wife, Anne White, to death, earning him a third life sentence, a third because he had also killed a fellow lifer in prison. Carl Eaton had been killed less than 200 yards from where the German Dornier bomber lay still to be rediscovered two years later with the corpse of Heinrich Richter, "'trapped inside.' "'Years later, "'local Middlesbrough historian "'Bill Norman "'tracked down Heinrich Richter's family "'and published his findings in a book. "'Richter had been born in 1911 "'and was 30 at the time of his death. "'He had flown 60 missions "'and had been awarded multiple times "'for his valor. "'Norman discovered that Richter "'had two brothers who were killed in the war, Kurt, who perished fighting in Russia "'in 1941,' and Gerhardt, who was killed in Romania in 1944. He never could find Richter's mother's name, but he did find that Friedrich, a name which is often shorted to Fritz, was the name of the father. Norman was surprised to receive a letter from one of Heinrich's relatives offering a photograph of Richter in his service uniform, just before his last mission. When Val and Jim Eden saw the picture for the first time, it was like seeing the image of a ghost. There, Staring back at him with his strong nose and chin and the distinct shape of his brow, was Richter, looking in many ways similar to their son Carl. The collar of Richter's jacket, bearing the insignias of eagles, just as their five-year-old son, just as their five-year-old son Carl, had drawn them. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries podcast. Every now and then, we'll be adding a Best of 1001 Friday, offering one of our listener favorites of this show from the past nine years, and usually with some reminisces from me to introduce it. When they do appear, you'll see our unique Best of 1001 Heroes logo, and they're scheduled to come out just after 12 a.m. Friday mornings. I'll try and have one up this Friday for you. We'll see. Until next time, everyone, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.